This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Chapter 3, page 1023. He continues where he left off in chapter 2 that although fasting is not necessary in order to attain an atonement, but nevertheless, what fasting accomplishes is that it restores the person to Hashem's goodwill. Even if your sin is already atoned, but you still need to be in Hashem's goodwill. You want Hashem to restore that original connection, that original level of intimacy. Because once you've sinned, you've shattered that trust. That trust is gone. So even if in a court of law, you know, the person will not hold anything against you and your sin is forgiven, but that trust is gone. And the idea of fasting is to restore, to bring you back on the inside, to bring you back, to restore that intimacy. And that's the concept we find in the Torah, that after a Jew brought a sin offering, he would bring a burnt offering. And the purpose of the burnt offering was to, to restore Hashem's goodwill, to restore that chemistry, the personal connection, that intangible, it's not a question of a court of law, guilty and not guilty, responsible, not responsible, you're no longer held responsible, your sins are forgiven. But the chemistry is not there. It's like when you date, you can have a perfect person, but there's no chemistry. It's very nice, but there's no personal connection. That's something on the inside, that's something intangible, something very deep. So even if a person did teshuva, repented, and repented wholly and completely, and all the sins are forgiven. And it won't be mentioned, not in this world, not in the world to come. But the chemistry is gone. That special feeling that innocence is gone. Restore that innocence, to restore that chemistry, to restore that connection, that's why you bring a burnt offering. That's the idea of a burnt offering. And the burnt offering was brought even for a sin of omish. A Jew violated a positive mitzvah, which certainly there's no obligation to fast. In the end of chapter 1, we learned about if a Jew violates a sin that comes with a death sentence, in order to trigger the atonement, to trigger that Hashem should cleanse the person, to facilitate and fast forward the cleansing process pain and suffering that Hashem will bring, so you fast. But here we're talking about, thank you, here we're talking about even a sin of omission. 
positive mitzvah. And nevertheless, you bring a burnt offering as an atonement for those sins. So even a sin of omission, you need the idea of a sacrifice or its substitute. Fasting. Because fasting is like offering a sacrifice. You're offering yourself. You're offering your flesh and your blood. Fasting is costing you. It's costing you your flesh. It's costing you bodily, physically. You're losing weight. You're, you're, you're giving a piece of yourself when you're fasting. That could be a diet for a lot of women. Okay. But here, it's, it's, you're doing it as offering. You're offering yourself. You're offering yourself. That's a substitute for the sacrifice to restore that innocence. As he brought earlier, the examples of even someone who just violated the rabbinic, like prayer, which is only rabbinic, at least the structure of prayer. These are examples for things that are very light, and you have the idea of fasting. This is how the the Kabbalist, the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, taught the amount of fast that you need in order to restore yourself in God's good graces. For that, you have to fast. As we find in the Talmud, the rabbis would fast, one for 40 days and one until two for, until their teeth turned black, wow. for minor, minor things. Although they were already forgiven, but they fasted in order to restore themselves in Hashem's good graces. And the Arizal taught us how many fasts you have to fast for each individual sin. I'm just wondering, there is a mitzvah we're supposed to take care of our bodies. Can, how can Hashem love us if we're fasting to a point that our teeth are turning black? Mm-hmm. He wants us to take care of our teeth. <laughs> how long do you have to fast before your teeth turn black? We'll never find out. Maybe, Maybe it's just a metaphor. It's not literal. No, no, it's literally. It's literal. It's literal, but I'm asking a serious question. No, I meant when they die. No, the uh, that's a that's a question we're going to discuss in chapter three. Ah, okay. Um, in general, a person is not allowed to harm himself. Your body doesn't belong to you. But nevertheless, you're allowed to fast to mend your soul. To do teshuva, you're allowed to fast. Because your soul takes precedence over your body. So you're not fasting just to mutilate yourself. You're fasting in order to heal, heal yourself, heal your soul. So that you have permission even to harm yourself, to turn your teeth black. But it's for your, it's for your own sake. I mean, you could say the same thing about suffering. You know, I mean, uh, you know, why do you have to suffer, you know? It's because God loves us, according to Gitanya. But that's what Hashem does to you. They're asking, the question is, how can you do it to yourself? What right do you have to do to yourself? Fasting is a choice that you're making. You were asking, should we, or could we do the same thing about suffering? Non-literal, not body. Uh, you want to read the, read the introduction, though fasting. Though fasting is not all necessary for attaining atonement, it was explained above that nevertheless it has a salutary effect as a substitute for the Ola offering. In temple times the sacrifice was offered even for transgressing 
a positive command in order to make the former offender once again acceptable and beloved of Hashem. Accordingly, the Arizal derived from the Kabbalah the number of fasts to be undertaken for numerous transgressions, even those that are not subject to the punishment or excision or death by divine decree. The latter Musa sages, those who lived after the Ari, were divided in their opinions about one who repeated a sin many times. Some contend that he must fast the number of fasts appropriate to that sin according to the number of transgressions. For example, the number of fasts prescribed in penance of the Arizal for wasteful omission of semen is 84. If someone commits this sin 10 or 20 times, say, he must fast 10 or 20 times 84, and so on in all instances. This is comparable to the Shatat offering required for every instance of violation. Others compare these fasts to the Ola offering brought from, for neglect of a positive command. The violation of a number of positive commands is atoned for in Hashem's eyes by one Ola, as the Talmud explains in Tractate Zevachim. We have an argument amongst the, the Musar sages after the Ari, the Rizal gave us the amount of fast, you have to fast for a sin, for every sin. Question is, if a person sinned more than once. And when you bring a sin offering, you have to bring a separate sin offering for each time you, you sin. Even if you're bringing the sin offering for the same sin, if you repeat the same sin over and over and over again, you have to repeat, you have to bring a separate sin offering for each time you sin. Even if it's the same sin, one offering doesn't cover all the sins. So according to this, you would have to bring a separate sin offering for each time you sin. So to here, sins, the fast, are like a substitute for sacrifice. So therefore you have to bring, you have to fast. The amount of fast days required for each time you commit that sin. So if you sin once, then you fast let's say 84 times, 84 days. But if you sin 10 times or 20 times, 10 times 84. Or 20 times 84, 840 days? It's not consecutive. It's it doesn't, have to be. It doesn't have to be consecutive, obviously. Like, uh, <laughs> Monday, Thursday. Whatever, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't have to be consecutive. But you would have to sin, you would have to fast. That's another opinion. Another opinion says no. Another opinion says that it's enough to fast once. And the analogy is the burnt offering. When you bring a burnt offering, one single burnt offering could atone for many, many sins of omission. Not only many times the same sin, but even many, many different, numerous different positive mitzvahs. So, in this case, it's not totally analogous because you do have to fast a set amount of, of, a set amount of fast days for each individual sin. But the same sin, if you repeat it, that surely we can learn from the burnt offering. It's enough to fast once. Once you, set, you fast a set amount of fast for that sin, you're done. It includes every time you sin, and that's it. That's the second opinion.
I guess it doesn't pay to sin. No. <laughs> if, you realize, if you realize the consequences, what you need to do to make up for it, it's just not worth it. Not worth the effort. For one sin, one time sinning, you have to fast 84 days. It's simply not worth it. And then he concludes, the accepted decision is... The accepted decision in this dispute is to undertake three times the number of fasts prescribed for that particular sin. 252 fasts, three times 84, for wasteful omission, and similarly for other sins oft repeated. It's like a compromise. Instead of fasting 10 times 84, you fast three times 84. 252. So you don't fast for every time you sin. There may not be enough days in your life. And you don't fast once. You fast three times. That's the accepted that's the accepted um, custom. What's the reason? What's the reason why three? Why the number three? What's the magical number three? So he says, this is based... This is based on a teaching in the Zohar. At the end of Parshat Hoch, as soon as mortal man sins once against the Holy One, blessed be he, he makes an impression above, should he sin a second time, the impact of his sin is even greater. The third time he commits the sin, the stain penetrates from one side through the other. Therefore, the number of fasts ought also to be great. So he uses the analogy, he brings the analogy of wasteful omission, which is very telling. You know, unlike conventional wisdom, the Torah is very clear that wasteful omission, spiritually, you can actually lose your life for that. The sons of Judah, mm-hmm. that's where it's called onanism. They lost their life because of wasteful omission. The Torah speaks very, very clearly, unmistakably, how damaging it is and how, Maimonides says, most people don't even die from illness. What they die from is from wasteful omission, which leads to all illnesses. You know, it, it depletes a person, it destroys a person. You know, conventional society encourages our youth to waste and waste and waste as much as possible, as if, and there's no harm to it. But actually, the Torah states very clearly, it's very damaging to the person. Not just spiritually, that's for sure, but it's damaging even physically. Who knows, it can lead to Alzheimer's, it can lead to, to terrible things. It depletes a person, depletes your energy, it depletes you. That's only a man we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking right. about a man. And emotional problems can come. You don't think you need another. That's, that's besides all of that, but, uh, but even physically. And, um, and this is an essential part of the person. You know, the Torah addresses the essence of the person. You can't address the person and leave out your sexuality. Well, Judaism will talk about, let's talk about motherhood and apple pie, let's talk about the weather, (laughs) but we're not going to talk about sexuality. That's like missing the whole point. A Judaism that doesn't address the sexuality is not a Judaism. Because this is real. This is is the essence of the person. It's not just a detail, a minor detail. 
This is associated with your being, with your essence, with your soul, with who you are. So if it's not connected with your relationship with Hashem, it's not informed, elevated, inspired, affected, then Judaism is not real. Then it's just a joke. It's just a, it's a meaningless charade. I mean, why even pretend? It's, there's nothing real there. Your Judaism hits home. Judaism is real. This is, the, this is the most real part within us. This is the most essential part within us. So Judaism has to affect and instruct us. And um, this is how we know when a person is really in touch with godliness. How do we know that a person is for real? That Judaism is not religion, it's not culture, it's not rituals or customs or politics or ego. That Judaism is for real. That your neshama, your soul has been touched. That you're really inspired, you're connected. You're a godly person. This is where it all, this is where it hits home. A person who is godly in the most private and intimate area in your life then you, know that, then you know that that person is for real. But if a person in this area of his life is completely without any boundaries and um, out of control, and then you miss the whole boat. You miss the boat. You miss, you miss the whole point. So this is not just a minor detail. This is an essential part of who we are. And the whole letter of Teshuvah ultimately was written to help us deal with this issue because it is the most challenging issue within the person, how you deal with your own sexuality, especially in today's day and age. Um, and uh, this, is really, this really gets to the crux and the essence of what being Jewish is and what a Jew is all about. The first generation of Jews that left Egypt, God testified. When they counted the Jewish people, God put his name in every tribe, personally testified that they were holy in the bedroom. In Judaism, the bedroom is the holy of holies. That's where God is present, not in the synagogue, as much as he is in the bedroom. The name for man and the name for woman contains God's name between the two of them. Ish has the Yud and Isha has the K. This is the Holy of Holies. Synagogue could be the Holies, but the Holy of Holies is the bedroom, the mikvah. So in Judaism, this is the holiest. Sexuality is called kiddushin. Marriage is called holiness. We don't look down at it. It's not something that's dirty or something we're embarrassed of or something we're ashamed of or something that's it's very holy and very... This is the most deepest part within us. It's the most precious part within us. This is our rocket fuel. And to take this rocket fuel and to treat it like it's a can of Coke, that's criminal. Our youth are being sold, sold the Brooklyn Bridge by a bunch of snake artists and, 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 and charlatans who tell them, oh, it's nothing. It means nothing. Depleted, waste away. It's meaningless. And what it does is it destroys your ability to be intimate. It deprives you of the deepest 
parts, the deepest levels of living life. This is the fuel that fuels a man's search for meaning, for purpose, to figure yourself out, to figure life out, to figure out the bigger picture. This is the drive, this is the motivation, and to take and to reduce it to an infantile level, to the, to the most childish, skin-deep, and reduce it to nothingness, it, it's, it's criminal. You're robbing our youth of their imagination, of depth, of soul, of... So this is, a very, this is a very essential part of a person. And a Judaism that skirts around it, talks about everything, is a Judaism that's talking about the weather. It's a Judaism that has no relevance to real life. It's a Judaism that doesn't hit home. It's not real. It's not personal. It's not intimate. If you have a relationship with Hashem, it has to hit home. It has to be intimate. And if it doesn't inform how you behave in the bedroom, in the privacy of your mind, then it's not real. So this is the example that he uses to do penance for wasteful omission, which is the equivalent of the same severity of a sin that comes with a death sentence. You can lose your soul, lose your life. And he says, for example, you sin 10 or 20 times. So the Rebbe's father asks, why does Alter Rebbe use the example of 10 or 20 times? Use any example. Five times, 15 times. Why 10 or 20? So he says, because 10 is represented by the letter Yud. Yud represents the mind. The wasteful emission, where does the emission come from? The emission comes from the brain. Through the spine, and ultimately it comes from the brain. So it affects the mind. It affects the creative mind. The highest level of consciousness, it comes from the brain. Deep within the brain. So the wasteful emission affects the brain. That's the yud. Now, how do you spell the letter yud? If you pronounce it, yud, if you write it out, how it's pronounced, it's yud vav dalad. Vav is 6, Yud is 10, Vav is 6, and Dalad is 4. Together, that's 20. So 10 or 20 times. This is what the Rebbe's father writes on his comments in the Tanya. The Rebbe points out that the Rebbe's father was the chief rabbi of Yekaterinoslav in the Ukraine. And the previous Rebbe left Russia. He was like the remaining rabbi, so he was like the leader of Russian jury at that time. Especially the whole Ukraine, Yekaterinoslav. And he was exiled. He was imprisoned and exiled by the Soviet Union, by, Stalinist, by the Stalinist regime. And he died in exile. And he, he couldn't take anything with him. He, he can, just a few basic books. He had his Tanya. As a matter of fact, in Simchas Torah, how did he celebrate Simchas Torah? He didn't have a Torah in exile. So he danced with the Tanya. He went to Kafas with the Tanya. That, that was his Torah. And he wrote a commentary on the Tanya. 
on the side of the Tanya that he had, he wrote. But he didn't have ink, he didn't have paper. His wife, Rebetzin Chana, went and put together ink with great sack. And therefore, he had nothing to write on. So he wrote very, very succinctly, very briefly. So his comment on this chapter is, he explains why the Rebbe brings the example of, of penance for wasteful emission of the semen. And he says the drop, the drop of semen also looks like a yud. It's like a drop. That's 10 and then 20. And that's the whole commentary. But the Rebbe explains. The Rebbe explained his father's writings. And he says, with this little comment, with this brief comment, he says, my father shed light on the whole theme without the Rebbe is discussing it. Because the truth is, this whole thing makes no sense. Why does Al-Tarebi have to give any examples? He said, it's a very clear, it's a very simple discussion. For every sin, you have to fast. The Arizal determine how many fasts you have to fast for each and every sin. The question is, what if you sin the same sin more than once? How many times do you have to fast? Is once enough and it covers all the sins? Like the burnt offering, or for each time you do it, you have to sin. You have to, you have to fast. Whether it's twice, three times, four times, five times. And the, and the consensus is you have to fast three times. If you sin more than 10, 20 times, if you fast three times enough. Examples, he already gave examples. In the previous chapter, he gave a few examples. If you missed a prayer. If you drank wine that you weren't supposed to drink. Wine that a non-Jew touched. And anger. He gave many examples. So who needs examples? What do these examples add? Why does Al-Turabi have to bring an example, period? And why does he bring an example from, from wasteful omission? And why does he have to bring 10 or, two, 10 or 20 times? And then he says, and he has to fast as many times. So the Rebbe says that with this little one-liner of his father, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak he explains he explains everything he sheds light on the reasoning behind these three different opinions because we have three different opinions how many fasts you have to fast one opinion says you fast once another opinion says you fast for each time you sin the same sin and the third opinion and that's the consensus is you fast three times what's the logic behind it? So the logic is as follows. The Rebbe explains. When a person sins, a person has 248 limbs corresponding to 248 minutes. When you sin, you affected that limb. Why does a person have 248 limbs? Because there are 248 mitzvot. Every limb corresponds to another mitzvah. What happens when you sin? It's like you've damaged, you've wounded that organ. That limb has been wounded, has been damaged. So when you don't do a mitzvah with that, with that limb, you've damaged that limb. Spiritually, you've damaged that limb. Once you've damaged that limb, 
a limb is damaged. If you continue to sin, the damage is done already. The limb is gone, the limb is wounded. You're not making it worse. The damage is already done. You broke your arm. It's broken. So no matter how many times you're going to continue to do this, repeat the same sin, the damage is already done. You're not adding to the damage. The damage is done. But in addition to that, there's also another aspect. Because all the limbs in the body are all connected with each other. The same blood circulates through all the limbs. That's why what affects one limb affects the rest of the body. So the limb, besides being an individual limb, the limb also represents all the other limbs in the body. It represents everyone else in the body. And it is represented by all the other limbs as well. Every limb in the body contains within it all the other limbs. So the hand, let's say, contains within it all the other limbs in the body. So when you broke your hand, you've also affected, not just your hand, in a way you've affected, it's not just an isolated limb, you broke your hand. Your hand is not isolated. Your hand is part of an organic whole, it's part of a system. It's all interrelated, interlinked, and interconnected. So when you broke your, your arm, you also affected all the other 247 limbs in your body. Because they're all included in the, in the arm. So by breaking and injuring the arm, you've also, in a way, sent injured all the other limbs in the body. The whole person's a cripple. You've affected every part of the body has been affected. And every limb in the body also includes the arm with it, within it. So since the arm is broken, it also affects the arm, the way it's represented in every other limb in the body. So the damage is very far-reaching. It's not just limited or isolated. You can't just isolate it. It's all connected. And this explains these three different opinions. The opinion that holds that you only have to fast once because they look at the limb. The limb is broken. The limb is damaged. The limb is injured. No matter how many times you sin, you're not going to add to it. It's done. The damage is done. So I sinned again the third time, a fourth time, 20 times, 100 times. The damage is done. The limb is gone. The limb is injured. Now we have to fix the limb. So you fast once, you fix the limb, and you're back in business. doesn't matter how many times you sin. The question here is the limb itself. So you damage the limb, and now you fix the limb by fasting once. It's enough to fix the limb. So it's done. Just make sure not to break it going forward. That's one approach. Another approach is, wait a minute, it's not enough, it's not that simple. Yes, you've damaged the limb and you've fixed the limb, but the limb is not isolated. The limb represents all the other 247 limbs in the body. The limb can, this limb, the arm, contains within it all the other limbs in the body. So by damaging and injuring the arm, you've also damaged all the other limbs in the body as they are included and represented within the, within the arm. And this opinion says that you have to fast three times. Why? As Al-Tarebi brings from the Zohar. If you sin once, then the stain doesn't penetrate so deep. 
If you sin more than once, the stain goes deeper. And if you sin three times, then the stain goes through and through. In other words, it's not just the arm that's injured. One limb in the body. By injuring the arm, you've also spread, you've also affected all the other limbs in the body because they're all represented and included in the arm. But for that damage to be complete, you have to sin three times. It's only when you sin three times that the damage affects through and through. That every detail, every aspect of the arm, the arm is like an arm that represents all the other limbs. So all the other limbs are included. But after sinning three times, the entire arm and all the details, all the components and all the other limbs that it represents, the damage is complete. So to make up for that damage, how you've damaged all the other organs, the way they are represented in the arm, for that you have to fast three times. Then, the third opinion is that in addition to this arm, this limb representing all the other limbs and containing within it all the other limbs, the arm is also represented in every other limb in the body. So when you sin, you're spreading the damage to the, all the other areas in the body. It's not just limited to the arm, because there's an arm in every limb in the body. The, every, the arm is represented in every limb in the body. So when you're sinning, you're bringing that injury and that illness, you're spreading it to every limb in the body. And for that, every time you sin, you're spreading more injury, you're spreading more negative energy, you're spreading, you're injuring, continuing to injure every other part of the body, every other part of the organism. Every time you're acting unhealthy, you're spreading that to every other part of the organism. Now that can never be complete. Why? Because ultimately, it's this sin. It's the arm. I'm injuring the arm. I'm not injuring the foot. But nevertheless, since all the organs are all interlinked and interconnected, so by continuing to sin with the arm, you're also bringing more injury and more damage to the, into the leg. But it can never totally affect the leg, because ultimately I'm not sinning with my leg, I'm sinning with my arm. But nevertheless, every time I add to the sin, 10 times, 20 times, every time I'm spreading more illness, more injury to the rest of the body. So for that... I have to fast for every time that I sin. I have to fast to undo that damage that has spread now throughout the whole body. That explains the third thing. And this explains why the Alter Rebbe uses the analogy of all the sins. He uses the analogy of wasteful emission. Because this analogy helps crystallize for us and clarify these three points. Because on one hand, wasteful emission is one organ in the body but it's in a very essential organ because it's the organ through which we give birth the ability to give birth when you give birth that's something that touches your very essence because you give birth you know you create something you give yourself you give your essence that ability to create to give birth of yourself, that's what you give your child, you're not just giving him something external, you're giving him your very inner being, your innermost being, your essence. That's why your children are their parents. That's why children inherit their parents, because they are their parents. 
because the parents give to their children give everything they have, they give to their children. So that ability to give birth touches and affects the essence of their being. So when you take that organ and you sin, you take that ability to give birth and instead you waste it, a wasteful admission, the damage is done. Every time you add to the sin, it doesn't, the damage to that organ is already done. You've taken the holiest thing, the most precious thing that you have, the holiest thing that you have, the deepest thing that you have, and you've turned it into nothing. So the injury, the damage is already done. That's why no matter how many times you're going to sin, it doesn't add to the sin. The sin is already done. And therefore, if you fast one set of 84 fasts, it's already done. That explains the first opinion. But in addition, as Maimonides says, that the reason why the sin of wasteful omission is so, is so profound is because the whole strength of the person is tied up with this, with this ability. The whole person is tied up with his sexuality. And therefore, when a person sins, you're not just affecting that organ, your ability to give birth. You're affecting the whole body. Because the whole body is included. Just like when you give birth, the whole person is contained. Everything that you have is concentrated in that semen. So too, every organ in the body is present and is represented and is contained. So therefore, if you sin, that sin doesn't only affect the drop, the semen. It affects all the other organs in the body. And that's why he says, that's the example that the Rebbe uses, the Yud, or the 10 or 20 times. 10 the yud, it's like a drop, a drop of semen, a tiny drop. Yud is just a drop. That's how you think it, and that's how you write it, just a yud. But when you speak it, when you communicate it to others, you spell it, you say it, yud, yud, the full letter yud, is not just a yud. It's yud vav dalit, to make out, to form the whole word, the whole letter yud, it's the yud vav dalit, which is the numerical value of 20. In other words, it's when you're affecting someone outside of you. It's not just you. You're thinking it, you're writing it. You're communicating to someone outside of you. It becomes fully formed. It's not just the Yud. It's also the Vav and the Dala that's contained within the Yud. So too, it's not just the sin that you've sinned with this organ. You've damaged and injured this organ. But also the effect that this organ has on others and all the other organs in the body, which are contained within this organ, just like the Vav and the Dalit is contained within the Yud. You've affected all the other organs in the body. Because all the other organs in the body, here you see it clearly. With this sin, the sin, the sin of wasteful omission, you see it clearly how all the other organs in the body are contained within the semen. This is your whole strength. Maimonides says the whole strength of the person is in this drop. And in the wasteful semen, it contains within it all the other organs in the body. The, the, the Vav Dalit, which makes up 20. That's why I use the analogy 10 or 20 times. But in addition, Maimonides adds, it also depletes the whole person. 
It depletes every organ in the body. And he says most illnesses come because people are not careful in this area. And therefore they deplete their bodies. By wasting, wasteful emission and wasting the sexuality. And they completely deplete themselves, which leads to all illnesses. So it's not just that all the other organs in the body, limbs in the body, are contained within this organ, but it also depletes all the other organs. Because every organ contains this organ within it. So by sinning and depleting, every time you deplete, you're, you're causing a depletion in all the rest of the body, and all the other organs. And therefore, for every time that you sin, you need a new set of fasts, which represents sacrifice, in order to atone for that sin, to make up for that sin. Because every time you sin, you're causing a depletion in every other organ in the body. So to make up for that, you need more than three times. According to the number of times that you've sinned, that's the number of fasts you have to fast. So the Rebbe says, with one sentence of his father, he illuminated this whole chapter. He illuminated the whole reasoning behind why the Alter Rebbe is bringing an example, why he brings an example of 10 or 20 He's illuminating and clarifying why the differences of opinion, why some say fast once is enough, some say you have to fast every time that you sin, and some say, and the consensus is three times. And it's this sin of the wasteful sentiment that actually crystallizes for us the reasoning behind all of these opinions. Because here you see it clearly. You see how it affects the whole body. This is the one area in your life that you see it clearly, how it affects your whole body, it affects every part of you. Because the one area in your life that you're totally focused, you're totally concentrated on 100%, otherwise you can't have a wasteful emission. You can't be 99.9% focused. In order to have a wasteful emission, you have to, have, you have to be 100% focused. It focuses every part of you, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, psychological, every organ in the body is present, is represented in that drop. This is one of the most difficult areas and challenges in a person's life. You know, how do you deal with it? Especially when you're surrounded with so much distractions and a society that glorifies, celebrates wasteful emission and much worse. Um, so the Torah's approach in general is you know, don't dwell on the issue too much you should have to fill your life when your life is filled when your life is filled with content when your life is filled with light you have no room for the darkness when you're engaged when you're fully engaged in Torah and you're engaged because this is an issue of the mind when your mind is fully engaged in Torah then your energy is depleted by Torah instead of being depleted by wasteful emission. So the answer is just to fill your life and to be so filled and distracted and busy and engaged, fully engaged, internally engaged. Your mind is engaged. You're studying Torah, so engaged and so filled with positive content. And you have to study Torah until it depletes you. Because you have to study Torah very deeply and very profoundly and very really engage your mind. And that's why Maimonides says 
But although it's always a good time to study Torah, but when does a person really succeed in Torah? It's at night. So it's at night, when everyone else is busy with, uh, with other stuff, the, the, the giants of, of the Jewish people, they were busy with Torah. They spend their nights and all their energies and all their... was completely delved deeply into Torah. So when your life is filled, therefore you don't... It's very hard to fight it head on. Because it's, it's very, the temptation is very powerful. And the human being is very weak. But when you fill your life with, with the sweetness of Torah and the temptation of Torah and, the, and engages your mind fully and you don't leave any room, you don't leave any emptiness for all this nonsense and there's no room. Where there's light, there's no room for darkness. You just fill, fill your mind and fill your life with so much light and so much... and it engages you fully that's the antidote. That's why studying Torah is the antidote, which engages the mind, is the antidote to the wasteful seminar, which ultimately also originates from the mind, because you just have to be fully engaged and fully occupied. How much more so when you have all these distractions? You just have to be even more engaged, and more... And that's the best way. That's the way the Rebbe advised. Don't, don't, don't try not to deal with it head-on. Um... It is brought down in the holy books when you participate in a meal of a pidyon haben, redemption of the firstborn, which is quite a rare thing. Has anyone here ever been to a pidyon haben? Because in order to have a pidyon haben, it has to be the firstborn child of an Israelite mother. If the mother is a Levi, Levite, or the father is a Levite, or even the mother is a Levite, or a Co- especially a Kohen, the mother or the father of the Kohen, there's no... Re- redemption. If the first child is a girl, there's no redemption. If the first child is a boy, but it was a caesarean, there's no redemption. So, you know, it's so rare to to actually um, have that requirement and to be there. But it says if you participate in the meal of a pidyon haben, it's the equivalent of if, as if you fasted 84 fasts, which mends, which fixes the sin of of, uh, of wasteful semen. So the next time you have an opportunity, you run. <laughs> it beats a cold shower, but... Uh, of a requirement again? Of a firstborn. The firstborn son. But neither the mother nor the father it could be a Cohen or a Levy. If it's a Cohen or a Levy, they're exempt. They're not obligated. And if it's a C-section, cesarean, then has to be a natural birth, and and um, the firstborn. You know, if there's if there's a stillborn child before that, it doesn't count. It has to be her firstborn child. The majority of Jews are Israelite. Yes, but then, yeah, but not all of them marry Israelites, and not all of them have a firstborn son. Mm. So by the time, and and even those that have a firstborn son, not all of them is a natural birth. So by the time you put all the variables in, yeah. it's not so it's not so common. <laughs> the child can't come after the daughter. No, so no, be a, it no. Has to be firstborn. Firstborn, the first one. Yeah. So, so even though Al Rebbe doesn't bring it, but nevertheless, 
you know, Al-Tarebi is trying to be lenient. So whatever, any, atom, any atonement, any help we can get, there's an opinion that says that, that, that joining the Pidyan Aben is the equivalent of fasting 84 times. Uh, go for it. <laughs> go for it. My grandson was the first born, and they're both Israelites. And? So there must have been it. I'm sure. But I don't remember. Well, unless the birth, was the birth natural? Or? Yeah. So should it? Maybe. I have to ask my son, but there must have been a Pidyan Aben. There was no, there was no, there was nothing before. It was literally the first born. First born. Okay. This fasting at the Pidyan Ben, I mean, just doesn't apply to No, you don't fast. You don't fast. You eat. I mean, but I mean, but it doesn't apply only to this issue. No, but it says specifically, it's like fasting the 84 fast of, right, that's required for wasteful, I think specifically for that, yeah. So it doesn't affect women in any way? If a woman goes to a pig in a den, yeah. she's not? No, it's always a good thing. But, uh, it's just a good thing. Oh, okay. So all this is just about men, basically. Yeah, yeah. men have a lot of problems. Men need, yeah. men need a lot of help. I thought it was all the positive attention. No. Nine yeah. months. Oh, thank you. Very good. But there's other sins. There's anger. There's, there's, plenty, there's plenty of sins. There's plenty of other sins. Well, I have a yeah. You marry a divorced man, and right. he already has kids, but now he's, he's divorced and he marries you and has a, a son with you. So mm. is that, can you have a pity on a man, or because he's had children from a previous marriage? Yeah, her, her firstborn. Even if he has her firstborn. Is there anything comparable for women about female sexuality or female this or that or not? For a woman, it's much more natural to associate sexuality with intimacy. You know, men, it's easier for them to divorce their sexuality from them from being intimate. A woman, it's all about intimacy. The biggest turn on for a woman is intimacy. You know, just sexuality per se, naturally, for most women, it's, it's that personal touch. Sexuality is a very much part of her identity, it's her being, it's her essence. For her, relationship and sexuality are very tied up. It's part of her, it's part of her essence. Men struggle. For men, it's, you know, they can divorce the two, and it can be more abstract. And... Um, so I think it's a bigger challenge for men. That sounds better for women, what you just said. I thought you were leaving us out, but it sounds very no, good. A woman doesn't have seed that she wastes, so it's not the same thing. But also emotionally, she's not sometimes as obsessed about sexuality. That's the mechanics of it. But the mm-hmm. internal is because there's a, there's a difference internally between man and woman. It's not just... The difference in a man and a woman is not just the external. The external is just a symptom. Mm-hmm. There's a feminine soul, there's a masculine soul. There's a feminine energy and there's a masculine energy. It's different energies, different... Uh, and the woman is much more intimate. It's much more... You know, she, she can't divorce her sexuality from her identity. That's why for a woman, the hair is, is, very, is very sexual. You know, for a man, what does it mean anything? 
because it's all tied up with her intimacy, her voice, her hair, because she can't separate, she can't compartmentalize, she can't, you know, that's all part of her intimacy. So she's, she's much more in touch to her sexuality and relationships are very much into wine. For the male, much more abstract, you know, they're, they divorce the two and, and um, it's much more of a challenge to, and that's why, that's why man and woman need each other, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's the woman who keeps the man grounded and, and honest and in touch with his sexuality in a healthy way, in a wholesome way. Um, that's why men and women are meant to be attracted to each other and are meant to be together, to complement each other. And only when they come together do you have the ultimate union and you have and they unite the masculine energies and the feminine energies in the universe within Hashem. And then that's when the world becomes whole, the world becomes whole again. Um, But if a man goes his way and a woman goes her way, then you have disaster. They're not meant to be separate. They're meant to be together. It's only then that they become whole. Um, So each one has its own dynamic. We we are different. We are opposites. But, but the women still have an animal soul. Uh, yeah, we all have animal souls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and men are into <laughs> It's interesting that it should come from the brain. In other words, it comes from the brain downward through sure. the spine. Sure. Well, everything comes from the brain. Uh, no, that's why. That's why you give your essence. You give your child, you give everything is contained in that drop. You give your whole essence, your whole potential, your brain, everything you have, you give to your child. So it's all there. But it, I mean, you never, uh, I mean, uh, as a young man, you don't uh, you know, think that it think comes so from, much the brain, that's from the brain. brain. That's why it depletes the brain. It depletes, it, 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 it does a lot of damage. Um, you know, society says it doesn't do any damage, but the Torah says no, it does a lot of damage. Mm. It depletes yes. you, it, 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 You know, our generation has been sold a bill of goods yeah. by people who don't have their interest at heart. They appear to be their friends, you know, you just have fun. The Torah has our interest at heart. The Torah is our real friend. Hashem is our real friend. Hashem says, listen, trust me. Do yourself a favor. Don't deplete yourself. Don't deplete your energy. This is your rocket field. With this you can soar to heaven. With this you can fly. With this you can imagine. And it's no wonder why there's no imagination today. I mean, think about it. 500 channels and nothing to watch. (laughs) It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. You know, you look, you look with with so much, so much volume coming out. It's rare to find good quality. On top of that, you pay over dollars <laughs> That's true, too. <laughs> so right to, find, to find a good quality, a good quality book, a good quality movie that you know, really engages you and with some thought behind it and some real imagination and real, you know, real twists and turns, not, not cheap violence and cheap pornography and cheap, you know, but real, yeah. real thought and 
even in comedy, to find real something that's really funny, it's very rare. I mean, there's no there's there's no imagination. Because, you know, when you deplete when you deplete yourself, you lose that ability. When you become completely depleted, you lose your imagination. Look at the leadership we have today. Look at the politicians. <laughs> you couldn't imagine it. Right. So there's. A <laughs> It's a complete lack of imagination, a complete lack of substance, of depth, of, of reality. It's like a la-la land, you know, it's a complete la-la land. So this is, this is all affected. Society says, oh, it doesn't matter. The Torah says, yes, it matters. It matters. When you raise a whole generation and you teach them, you teach them a drunk lifestyle. Yeah. You know, this is what you get. You get drunk lifestyle. These are the consequences. Wasn't it always going back to you outside know, always the same just different, different costumes, different. But it, it was all, it, it, the temptations were always there. But now it's amplified a thousandfold. Right, yeah. <laughs> now, now there's no escape. Now always, it's uh, now you have to be very strong. True. Uh, it, uh, true. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is always there. Same things that we're talking about now. But the now it's. Everything is overt and everything is, is right. And there's no escape, there's no escaping. Because with the internet, it's right there, everything is right there. So you have to be internally, you have to be very strong. Now, God doesn't give us a challenge we can handle, which is why Hashem gave us the Tanya, He gave us the letter of Teshuvah, He gave us all these powerful tools. He gave, us, he gave us the Rebbe, he gave us yeah, all these powerful tools to be able to overcome all these challenges that we have. We also have very positive things that we have today we never had before. The opportunity to study Torah 24-6, wherever you are on the internet. You can listen to lessons in Tanya.com. You can study Torah whenever you want, wherever you want. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's an amazing thing. So, on the other hand, Hashem gave us all the tools and the antidotes to be able to overcome, we have to be very strong internally. You have to be focused, and and if you are, you know you can soar. You know, what's interesting is, uh, you know, I have two daughters who were, uh, you know, in their twenties, and they hang out with some, you know, people who have gone to yeshivas and this and that, and lo nigiya. It's like part of their lifestyle. Right. You know, they don't they don't think so. See the sad the sad thing is when when people are so influenced by the environment or the politically correct culture, you know, when the when the psychologist one oh one tells you with such confidence, your professor tells you with such confidence, yeah. not only they tell you with confidence that it's okay and it's wonderful, but they actually laugh and scoff yeah. at anyone who suggests otherwise. Yeah. And the Torah says it depletes you. They laugh at it. Ah, what nonsense. Get with the times. And that person is not your friend. He parades as your friend, but he doesn't care about you. You know, he's, he's, he's a purveyor of drunk food and drunk medicine. And you see the results. The Torah, Hashem is your friend. Hashem is your best friend. No axe to grind. He created us. He knows us. He created all the temptations. And he's telling us for our own good. Trust me. I never lied to you. Everything I told you was true. 3,800 years ago, I spoke to one person in a tent 
I told them, go out of your tent. Your children will be spread throughout the world 3,800 years later. Everything Hashem said in this Torah came true. Never lied. Every word, every letter. So who are you going to trust? The pseudo-scientist who changes his mind every Monday and Thursday? Margarine is healthy, margarine is not healthy. This, this, this is the cure, the next thing you know, it, it's barbaric. Constantly revisions, constantly revising. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the Torah that never lied to us, that looked us in the face, never buttered us up, never embellished, just told it like it is, the truth. Who are you going to trust some clueless, arrogant, egomaniac who ha- whose understanding of life you know, the human being is made up of a hundred trillion cells. The cell, one cell, when you look on the cell under the microscope, nothing like it exists in the external world. The construction of that cell is so complex, so miraculous. That's one cell, a hundred trillion such cells, and they all work in perfect harmony. I mean, it's beyond our scope. People spend their whole lives on one organ in the body in the ear. And they will admit to you they haven't even scratched the surface of understanding one organ in the body. And this pseudoscientist with arrogance, ah, it's no big deal. It's wonderful, it's healthy for you. Well, are you going to trust him? Or are you going to trust Hashem? The creator, your creator. The creator of heaven and earth. The Torah that never once lied to us and predicted 3,800 years ago that the Jewish people will outlive the Romans and the Greeks and never leave the front pages of, of, of history and outlive Hitler and Stalin and thrive. Who are you going to trust? When Hashem says, trust, this will deplete you. It's not healthy for you. You're robbing yourself of your core. You're robbing yourself of your essence. You're robbing yourself of the deepest most precious, you're robbing yourself of the ability to be intimate. It's no wonder why people can't be intimate today, people can't forge relationships today. They've been robbed of the ability. Because eroticism robs you of the ability to be intimate. It's not doing you any favors. Versus what the Torah is trying to help us to be able to tap it, to be able to access the deepest, the most intimate, the richest part within us that enriches our life, that makes our life so rewarding and rich and wholesome and eternal and real. So, who are you going to trust? But the sad thing is that so many people are conned. So many people are easily conned. When society tells you and publicizes you, it's wonderful, it's good, it's great, Throw off all limitations. Do whatever you want. Follow your heart. It's wonderful. And the whole sexuality has been reduced to some 12-year-old infantile fantasy. And that's how adults lead their lives. And it's so third-rate. It's so mediocre. It's so boring. And so not interesting. And people fall for it. So you have to realize that they are the Bernie Madoffs, the social Bernie Madoffs. Just like Bernie Madoff conned the whole world and stole $60 billion. These social scientists are the Bernie Madoffs society, and they're robbing the youth of their soul. They're robbing them of the ability to live, 
and to imagine and to be intimate and to be in touch and in tune and connected and to really lead a wholesome, rewarding life. But unfortunately, it's so easy to be kind. People, people are very impressionable, especially the youth. And when someone tells you with certainty and scoffs and laughs at the Torah, ah, that's old-fashioned, that's ancient, that doesn't apply to the 21st century, not, to, not on the Upper East Side in the year 2011. Oh, that's, that's an ancient myth. Unfortunately, it's easy for someone who's an impressionable to fall for. Just like all these wise millionaires fell for, for, fell for Uncle Bernie. Yeah. So, so all these people are being taken in by these charlatans and snake oil uh, experts. Experts, they parade themselves. We're Psychology 101, we're the experts on the subject. And we've determined... You know, but the Torah, if you had to take a bet, put your money on the Torah. <laughs> and don't be surprised if in 10, 20 years you're going to read in the New York Times a great discovery. We've just discovered that wasteful emission depletes you. It harms you. We've been selling our youth. We sold our youth out for the last 100 years. And we destroyed a whole generation of our youth. Yeah. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.